Welcome to the Premium Finance Show. Interviews and insights from industry professionals, helping you use financed insurance to provide tax-free withdrawals and extended estate protection. The Premium Finance Show is brought to you by your podcast team, where having your own podcast is as easy as being a guest on ours. Find out more at yourpodcast.team. Now here's your host, John McDonough. On this episode of the Premium Finance Show, we welcome back Trey Kelly to talk about what's pressing on everyone's mind right now. What's going on with interest rates? What does that mean for my structure with Cool Springs Financial? How does this impact the overall design in the future? What does it mean for my collateral, et cetera, et cetera? If you remember from the first time Trey was on the show, we went deep into the Armageddon scenario. Um, What happens if the market would crash and interest rates spike? Well, that question has resurfaced itself given what's going on with the Federal Reserve and the potential for them rising uh, rates here over the next few quarters. And Trey addresses that specifically and helps everyone pump the brakes on the sky is falling. Trey truly understands the economics and the sensitivity behind our structure and he's as excited about the structure today as he was the first time he heard about it and you will gain peace of mind as well as understanding the relationship between interest rates the federal reserve the stock market and the cool spring structure you do not want to miss this show it is worth your time go over to the uh, podcast store Download the full episode and make sure you listen. See you on the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Premium Finance Show. My name is John McDonough, Senior Managing Director with Cool Springs Financial, and I am excited to welcome back to the show for a second time, Robert Trey Kelly, President of Bascom Advisors. If you'll remember from the first episode we did with Trey um, last August, I think that was, We had a very in-depth discussion about what Bascom Advisors does and Trey being the founder of Bascom, how they help manage interest rate sensitivity, how they solve the problem of what's going on in the interest rate environment relative to borrowing dollars to purchase assets of a certain type. And clearly here at the Premium Finance Show, we're concerned about how we borrow money to facilitate the purchase of cash value life insurance policies, which Trey is familiar with, but he also dives into the real estate market in a very heavy manner. Trey's innovative. He's entrepreneurial. He's definitely an interest rate expert with passion. And when you remember from the previous episode, if you haven't listened to it, he truly has a passion for client service, quantitative analysis. He can geek out on this stuff pretty deep, which is what I find exciting because there's no emotion to it. It's simply data and, uh, and, and using that data to avoid any fear-based decisions. So, Trey, welcome back to the show, man. Thanks so much, John. Hey, so we got to, right off the jump, man, we, we got to address the the elephant in the room for our clients. And it's going to be a short question, and I know it's going to be a long-winded answer by you, and I'm going to give you as much runway as you need. But how concerned should our clients be right now with, inflation, 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 everywhere they turn from the news to any podcast or when they pull up an internet browser, 
to rising interest rates to the Fed's going to raise rates every meeting that they have a couple of times a year. And what does that mean for the stock market? Basically, what does that mean for people that are borrowing money at relatively low interest rates today to finance a purchase of an asset, which is tied to stock market performance? What does all of that mean today? Sure. Um, and, and yes, everywhere you turn, it's kind of the inflation story and kind of backtracking almost to uh, when we were previously talking. It was the, the Fed, the, the FOMC, um, so the Federal Open Market Committee, uh, part of the Fed that is the policy makers uh, as far as Fed funds, um, as well as quantitative easing, et cetera, um, had been Jerome Powell, the chairman, had been uh, sticking to his guns uh, kind of the mid to end of last year with inflation being transitory and saying that most of the inflation we were seeing was related to COVID issues, supply chain issues, um, pent up demand, uh, demand moving from services because everyone was at home to goods. Uh, there was, you know, unprecedented stimulus coming from uh, the government. So people had cash. And so we saw both a demand spike um, as well as huge supply chain issues. Um, so basic economics 101, supply and demand. Uh, we did not have the goods and we had a lot of demand for them. Um, that proved not to be transitory. So we, we are very happy now that the, the Fed is at least addressing that, has taken that word out of their vocabulary um, and now understands that there are some deeper uh, systematic trends that are driving inflation. Um, one of those that is certainly on their radar uh, and, and is something that drives a lot of concern, you know, kind of behind closed doors is a wage price spiral. And, and all that means is uh, prices continue to go up. So the uh, standard of living for your workforce is ac actually going down, everything else equal. Workers demand more money. They raise wages, they pass that cost through to the ultimate consumer and via the, the good or service they're selling. Prices continue to go up and now workers demand more money. And so we've seen that with kind of wage growth being very strong, um, but still it is trailing inflation. So, so people's overall uh, standard of living uh, or how far their money will go despite getting paid more, it has actually gone down. Um, but some of the, the bigger concern, I guess, around inflation is how the Fed is going to have to react, right? So we have the highest inflation right now in almost 40 years. So we have to go back to kind of like the early 80s. Um, you know, core PCE, which is the Fed's preferred inflation gauge, uh, which is just personal consumption expenditures, subtracting out uh, food, energy, et cetera, some of the more volatile components, uh, is running at 4.9% year over year. Uh, PCE, not the core, so that gas and food, et cetera, included, is running at 5.8%. Um, again, that's the highest going back to the 80s. And Where did sure I hear everyone, recently that 7% number somewhere? I thought I heard somewhere that 7% was the inflation number. 
Randy, you just beat me to it. I was going to say, as I'm sure most people also heard the headline CPI number. Okay. Has come in at a seven handle. Um, again, that's also the highest since the 80s. Um, and so the Fed has a dual mandate, right? Stable prices and full employment. Full employment, uh, based on what the Fed has been saying and what we've seen in the jobs reports, we're approaching full employment. Uh, they're not overly uh, excited about the participation rate, not rebounding as much. Um, but we've also had some uh, kind of generational shifts as more of the baby boomers are retiring, particularly with kind of the COVID impetus, uh, maybe retiring a little earlier. Uh, yeah, the great but, resignation uh, as it is, right? Exactly. Um, and that also drives, you know, a, a lack of supply on the workforce drives wages up because now businesses are, are having to compete for employees, right? And retain them, uh, which is where we're, we're staying very busy in the Cool Springs environment is on retention strategies right now. But yeah, keep going. No, absolutely. Uh, so the bigger concern, I guess, around inflation is how the Fed is going to react. So again, their dual mandate, they, they feel pretty confident that we're reaching full employment. So on to the second uh, mandate, which is stable prices. Now, stable prices does not mean that the price of a given good does not increase in a year. The Fed targets 2% annual inflation for a reason, right? If people believe that a given good or service, so, hey, I'm buying a house, if I told you at the end of the year that house is going to be the same price or it could potentially be a little less, it, it pulls demand back, right? People say, okay, well, then I'll wait. You know, mm -hmm. I'll save up a little bit more, et cetera. If I tell you, hey, it's going to be a little more expensive at the end of the year, you should probably buy now. People, that helps encourage buying because holding off, it just costs more. I can uh, see that. And this is why deflation is such a scare and because that's really a snowball as people believe that you know my house uh, or the house i'm looking at i could probably buy at the end of the year for five or ten percent less i'm going to hold off on that purchase well that runs through the whole system and kind of the the whole consumer sentiment and as people are buying less that exasperates the deflationary spiral on the other side of that is um, kind of that hyperinflation or stagflation, and that's where inflation starts rising so quickly that now people are holding off on purchases, uh, not because they think it's going to be cheaper, but they're focused too on like saving money because all of their costs are going up. Um, particularly sensitive are, are kind of the lower income or fixed income. Um, people in the economy, right? Like as gas goes up 10%, uh, you really feel that on a fixed income budget. Yeah. Um, you know, others can certainly absorb that. So a lot of this, and again, I don't want to get too long-winded, but, but kind of goes back to Fed policies over the last 10 plus years. Um, so to a certain extent, you know, COVID's exasperated it, certainly with the supply chain. Um, but we can't have this notion that we can constantly inflate the Fed's balance sheet, you know, which is what, oh, 
approaching nine mil trillion right now. Mm-hmm. Um, can't continue to inflate that. Can't inject trillions of dollars into the economy through stimulus checks and other measures, and not expect any uh, impact on the cost of money and inflation. Uh, so inflation has proved to be stickier, and I think the bigger concern for markets now is, hey, you know, last year we had 5.7% GDP, right? That's real GDP. Nominal was 11 and change, so including inflation. But inflation adjusted 5.7, which is the strongest in, in you know, over 10 years, mm-hmm. right? So why do we have a monetary policy that is so accommodating in a time that we're actually still expanding? And a lot of kind of pundits and economists have pointed to the Fed. Everyone likes to point a finger, obviously, um, and saying, hey, Fed, you guys should have reacted quicker. Like you've been, you were injecting third quarter last year, $120 billion a month into the economy, while like, you know, the S&P returned 27% last year. That's right. So it's one of those things like if inflation, as you were trying to tell everyone it was transitory, if it proved stickier, that was the time you needed to start moving, right? So the concern now is the Fed may be behind the eight ball. They, They should have reacted sooner. We did not need this amount of accommodation in an environment when uh, the economy is expanding so rapidly Um, and kind of pull that all together. What are they going to have to do now to stem inflation? And their really number one tool for that is going to be Fed funds rate. And so we have seen you know, again, the Fed releases that dot plot or summary of economic projections every other meeting, so four times a year. And, you know, in at the uh, September SEP report, they were really projecting roughly zero to one height this year in 2022. At the December meeting, so just a few months later, it was up to three hikes. So there was a huge shift in the forecast from the people with the most information, theoretically, the Fed. Yeah, in a 90-day window. Very quickly. And so that's why this recent turmoil has, has really been driven by a Fed hawkish pivot. Right. The Fed went from saying, hey, we think inflation is transitory. We're not behind the curve on this one. Uh, We're still monitoring. We think we're getting closer to a tightening cycle. Uh, But certainly we do not want to pump the brakes on the economy and the recovery. Right. Well, fast forward. Now they're saying, hey, inflation is not transitory. It's proving to be a lot stickier. And again, to my earlier point, behind closed doors, we really don't want to enter a wage price spiral, right? So we need to go ahead and tighten financial conditions to help slow the pace of inflation. Uh, 
how that actually comes to fruition is, is one of two ways in this case. We have both the front end of the curve, that's a really two, three year and in, that they control via Fed funds. And as they came out in December and said, hey, we're forecasting three, maybe a little more hikes, they've since come out and with some kind of hawkish commentary, uh, which now people, you know, Goldman is saying this four hikes is still their baseline, but uh, six or seven hikes is possible. Um, based on futures pricing in October, the market was pricing in roughly one hike this year. They are currently pricing in almost five hikes. So in just a few months, dramatic changes in outlook. And that's what we're seeing right now, correct, in the equity markets is a a reaction, a readjustment to this news or this anticipated move by the Fed. That's what's happening right now, correct? 100%. And so the pullback we have seen on the equity side is really a reaction to, hey, the Fed is removing a lot of accommodation. So some people have said the Fed are already like embarking on a tightening schedule because they are reducing the amount of uh, treasuries and mortgage-backed securities that they buy each month. But yet they're still buying them today as we speak. But they're still buying. Yeah. It's like, hey, John, I was giving you $100 a week. Now I'm only giving you 50. I'm still giving you money. Right. So that's not the same as, hey, I'm not giving you anything. Or better yet, I'm charging you something. That's tightening. I just got used um, to the hundred and now I don't like the fact yes. that you took 50 away from me. And that's where equity markets are, right? Cause they have really been relying on the fed put for 10 years. And uh, since the, the financial crisis, um, mm-hmm. they know anytime markets start to waver, the fed steps in. Um, and you know, it was the barometer that Trump used. Biden's now saying inflation is the Fed's job to curtail, and why haven't they done it yet? Um, so the Fed has gotten somewhat politicized, and, and uh, again, don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but um, the bigger takeaway is the, the market believes that the Fed may be behind the curve. The Fed is saying, hey, we can control the front end, so we're probably going to hike four or five times. I honestly think markets are going to start to puke you know, well before that, but it's um, already started that. Right? Exactly. And that's just on the really the expectation, not even the reality. But uh, by the, the time other- the reality sets in, correct me if I'm wrong, but hasn't smart money and you can't see my air quotes, but hasn't smart money already made all the moves for the most part. And then it's just the average daily investor. Then that's either trying to dump stocks, which is too late at that point because the market's already priced in all that. So if you haven't already started selling, now's not the time to start doing it. Well, and and I'd say it's, you have pundits on both sides uh, that would say, Hey, I, and we can kind of see this in the flattening of the yield curve. Um, So I think we've mentioned this before, John, that the one uh, kind of bellwether or, or canary in the coal mine for an upcoming recession um, is often an inverted yield curve. Mm-hmm. So all that means is short-term money, the, you know, the most common is kind of a two-year treasury versus 
10-year treasury. Yeah, when the that's at a higher rate than the 10-year treasury, that's the inverted. Exactly. And what that really says is investors don't have confidence in the longer term, so five, 10-year returns on the economy. They think we are entering a, a slow period, and i.e. recession. And it's a psychological level, right? And it's one thing, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, so you will certainly, the yield curve right now is only, you know, 61, 62 basis points different between two-year money and 10-year money, which is pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. Um, it's basically flat. Exactly. And every time we've had a recession, it has been preceded with an inverted yield curve. We've had a couple times, and only a couple times, we've had an inverted yield curve and kind of saved or, or pushed down the road the upcoming recession. But every recession we have has had been preceded by an inverted yield curve. So you'll hear that in the news coming up as um, it continues to flatten. And the, one of the reasons it flattens is the Fed has most direct control, especially kind of historically longer term looking, on the front end of the curve via Fed funds. Since the financial crisis and quantitative easing, and like we were just talking about, the Fed buying $120 billion a month in treasuries and mortgage-backed securities, and they've been tapering that with the idea of being done in March, uh, that whole new quote-unquote tool, monetary tool that the Fed has been using, has a lot of effect on the back end of the curve, because now they are part of the supply and demand equilibrium within the market because they are such a huge buyer of it, right? So one, the market is worried about the lack of liquidity, like the pullback on liquidity by the Fed tapering that. And then secondly, are they actually going to start um, unwinding their balance sheet? So they, they can continue to keep the balance sheet at almost $9 trillion by just as those bonds mature, taking the proceeds and reinvesting them. The other way they can actively unwind the balance sheet is to start a kind of paste uh, dumping of some of the assets. Again, that drives uh, a lot of uh, supply. You also have a demand pullback because one of the largest buyers, i.e. the government, is pulling out. Um, so those two things combined can help give kind of the back end a little bump. But what we're really seeing is the market's concerned that the Fed is going to do what they historically do, and that's hike us into a recession. And there's a reason why hikes are normally a little bit um, slower paced compared to cuts, and it's because there's a bias towards making sure the economy doesn't falter. And when it does, let's get it back on track as soon as possible. So we're going to cut rates immediately, very low. But right now, we're just trying to get room off of zero. And the Fed is very concerned about inflation. Um, and in their toolbox right now, the thing that can best help uh, outside of continuing to taper the asset purchases is increasing front-end rates. You said again, something. You just said something there that I want to draw more attention to, which was a huge statement that I need our listeners to understand. Is we need to get some room off of zero, and 
what that means is the rate right now, as the Fed kept cutting and cutting and cutting and cutting rates, you know, the treasury is down to near zero, right? Mm -hmm. And, and if we're going to get into any type of expansion economy in the future, the Fed has to have room to maneuver those rates. The only way to get room off of zero is to raise rates, right? So it's this, it, they're damned if they're due, damned if they don't scenario that they've created for themselves. Because what you and I talked about last year even was in the COVID crisis that happened and the market tanked and along with that energy anomaly that kind of took place in March and the market crashed, mm -hmm. the Fed lowered rates again to, to prop the market back up and the equity market back up. And so they, they have no more room. There's no more fat on the bone. Mm -hmm. And then that's the whole purpose behind quantitative easing. If there's a reason we had never used it before the financial crisis. It's because in the previous recession, which was the dot-com, we only had to drop rates to Fed funds front end to 1.75%, which sounds crazy high based on where we are right now. But we are actually in a recession, and it was considered accommodative to be at 175. <laughs> so now how can you make an argument of GDP at 5.7% last year, inflation, PC, 7.9% last year, running very, very hot? How can we make an argument that this is an environment that not only do we can we not withstand 1.75%, Fed funds, we need zero. We also need 120 billion a month in liquidity injections, which is yeah. just crazy. Yeah, and pigs get global. fat, hogs get slaughtered, right? And yes. we we became very gluttonous as um, you know the Fortune 500 companies using the, the government's money to grow their balance sheets. And you get you get used to the crack that they're they're giving you. Yeah, you and become addicted you know, to it. I don't want to use addicted. my money. I'm going to use their money. No. And our underwriting is always based on almost a 0% cost of debt. And it's like, yeah, yeah that's not reality. No. And if we want to pat ourselves on the back and say how strong our economy is, we can't fool ourselves at the same time and say, by the way, we are being as accommodative as possible. Because what that leads to is stuff like this inflation and a wage price spiral. Uh, so the Fed is going to have to kick up rates. Again, the market went from pricing and maybe one hike next this year back in September to now pricing in almost five hikes, right? So there's just a big hawkish shift. So sorry for the long-winded runaround. No, that's a perfect. How does that yeah. impact the borrowing cost is, you know, right now, especially in times of uncertainty, you've seen some spreads widen. Um, but if you are just based on kind of short-term rates, the bigger concern moving forward is, you know, not only has the 10-year, you know, it closed the year around or was in December at like 1.4%. Now we're at like 183. Um, but even more substantial, the two-year treasury, which all that is is kind of market expectations for Fed funds over the next two years went from 21 basis points in September to currently 1.17%. So if Fed funds is at zero to 25 bips, 
and the market's saying for the next two years, we think it's going to average 1.17%. That's about eight rate hikes in the next 24 months. Yeah. That is a huge shift from kind of zero or one expected. And I think you kind of compound that with the unwinding of the purchases and, and or tapering of the purchases, kind of unwinding the balance sheet. Um, people are, are concerned that investors, particularly the, the market's going to puke, right? The market's going to start to feel kind of the cost of their debt raising kind of coupled with uh, valuations being stretched, right? Because valuations are, are just discounted future cash flows. And when the interest rate environment goes up, those cash flows are discounted more heavily. So uh, there's impact on the overall valuation of the market as well as um, a tighter financial uh, environment for those companies to operate in. And so that's where we have seen, you know, the, just this year, what the S&P is about 7 8%. So far. Um, so yeah. we, we entered a correction. <clears throat> I know I think one day last week or earlier this week and rebounded from it. Um, but point is, is markets are forward looking and they're like, hey, if the Fed is as hawkish as kind of Powell came out to be, there's going to be some pain on our side. Um, I would argue that, you know, if we all took a step back, it's uh, almost like Volcker, who's the Fed chair in the 80s that kind of stemmed inflation for us. Hey, there's going to be a pain period for everyone. But instead of kicking the can down the road, which we have been doing for years and years and years, let's go ahead and have a little bit of pain now and be on more solid footing to continue to expand moving forward. You know, you just said kicking the can down the curb or down the road. And we've been saying that for years and that's exactly what's been happening. And in a very isolated silo for our premium finance clients and those that are thinking about a premium finance structure with us, as masochistic as this statement is going to sound is I am open to, I wouldn't say I'm eager, but I'm open to, I'm not opposed to what's being forced to take place with the Fed and the decisions that they're having to make right now. The reason being, Trey, is because our products that we put the clients in have a 0% floor on their index, right? So when markets, indices go negative, they hit a 0% floor. So it's a fixed product from that perspective that the banks are lending the money to to purchase the asset. The flip side to that is, you know, clients don't get a hundred percent of the upside opportunity that's created. So our clients didn't get 27% on the S and P last year, right? They maybe got 11 to 15% on the S and P, which is still fine when you're borrowing money at 2%, right? But we also know that markets don't work in, in, you know, if you think about the standard deviation bell curve, zero being the line in the middle at the very peak of the curve. Markets don't typically live in the negative 5% to positive 5% range. Historically, it's 8, 9, 10% to the positive and, or higher, like we saw last year at 27. And then the year before that, we saw a pretty good market in 2020 and then 2019. Uh, 
Well, yeah, what, 2019 was 29%, 2020, exactly. 16%, 20, yeah. but you literally, that was what I was about to say, it, the um, kind of uniqueness of your product, too, that I would want the Fed to make some pain for the economy very quickly, knowing that it's going to put us on more stable footing going forward, and knowing that, by the way, I have a 0% floor. And I'm currently borrowing money. Yeah. And and if we did a one-year loan for them, even if it's tied to the SOFR right now, and maybe we got it at a little over 2%, I'm, for the short run, I'm okay taking a negative 2% arbitrage at the beginning of my transaction, as opposed to later on when there's more money into the deal, right? Where a 2% negative arbitrage has a larger impact on on the economics but if i can if i can weather a zero which means the market was negative historically speaking the rebound has been huge from these equity markets yeah right you look at 2018 and so we're able to get the arbitrage we're looking for so we went from negative six percent 2018 s&p return to 29 percent 2019 there you go so again you can just weather that you have a 0% floor. Yeah, you might have a mismatch with, with your debt costs for that 12-month period. But very quickly, in 24 months, you know, your, your internal IRR is 20-plus percent. Yeah, and, and your, your average over those two years was still huge, right? Your average huge. arbitrage was massive. Exactly. And, and so, so it kind of goes back to the relationship we were talking about um, previously with your cost of debt and kind of expected returns on the equity mm-hmm. side. Yeah. And exactly. as we're entering a tightening cycle, there could be fear that, hey, my debt costs are going up and the S&P right now is puking. It's getting monkey hammered. Uh, <laughs> and it's based like on that. just those forward expectations, man. Like, oh God, our interest costs are going to be much higher. We're not going to have Fed liquidity, et cetera. Um, Unless you are looking at this type of uh, investment or vehicle with, with the life insurance policy as a very short-term hold, like, hey, this is a 12-month or 20-month play, which I don't think anybody is actually doing that, um, you're going to be fine. It, it's the longer run, things roll in cycles. And so though right now we are seeing a period where we expect higher debt costs via interest rates, via the Fed trying to fight inflation and raising Fed funds, as well as unwinding their balance sheet, mixed with a equity market that is flashing all sorts of red flags that, hey, you know, maybe valuations are a little overstretched. And if you raise rates, there are going to be a little bit of pain period. If you extrapolate that two, three, four years, we we have consistently rebounded. And so your average over that five-year hold is still incredibly positive. And this is before we talk about the specifics of your product that has the floor, et cetera, which helps mitigate some of that volatility during that time period. Um, so while you may see a brief time uh, of, uh, you know, at worst, some negative return with your debt costs versus the returns on the S&P, extrapolate just uh, another couple of years and very quickly you're back in the money. 
Well, and the other thing, Trey, is economies cycle. You have expansion, you have recessionary periods, you have growth, you have retraction. It's that wave of a, a, a cycle, right? And we always want it going up, but this is, as painful it is, a natural part of the economic cycle that we're in. And if we want the growth to consistently be there, we have to experience this from time to time. And the markets are used to that. You know, one on every four years on average is a down year in the market on average. Doesn't mean one in every four is going to be, but averaging it out, it is that way. But that's where you get the growth from. You get the growth from the resets, from balancing everything out. We can't continue to have all this money just flowing out there with relatively no cost to it, there's an impact to that. And that's what we're feeling right now. Exactly. And, and what has been nice is that historically our expansion periods are far longer. That's know, right. Much, much, much longer than our pain period. That's right. But yes, it may feel like forever, but in the next you know, 12 months, we'll be through it. Versus then have nine years of expansion. But a healthy what, expansion. What was the longest recession on record? Do you know that? I think it, what was it? I actually. Months, 18 months, well, something like that? Let's see. So officially, so a recession is, is two consecutive quarters of negative GDP, uh, as they define. So it can be a little bit of uh, lagging, right? We are already entering a recession before we get those negative GDP That's numbers. Right. Um, but the longest I'm looking at Bloomy right now, I see two and a half years from uh, the end of 2007 to about mid-2009. So 30 months. So, um, and then we and just came out of that, the- right? So if you think about coming out of the subprime mortgage lending crisis, which is what that was, and the financial meltdown, we're just now experiencing a reset from that growth, from that recession. And at that recession, once things hit, we went from a Fed funds rate of 5.25% down to zero. In, and that's what people also forget is where the rates were. That's right. Yes. And, and so that was the first time we hit zero on Fed funds. Uh, again, going back like I was saying, entering into the dot-com, we were at 6.5% Fed fund, and we had to drop it down to eventually 1%. But at the time, that was like the bottom in our minds. Like, oh my God, they just literally cut rates four and five and a half percent. Fast forward to the financial crisis, Instead of starting at six and a half percent, we only got rates back up to five and a quarter and then immediately dropped them to zero. Mm-hmm. And that's when the Fed came out and said, hey, we're at zero and we cannot have the economy falter. What else can we do? Yeah, and we that's need quantitative bullet. easing. Exactly. So we have a Fed balance sheet of call it, you know, half a trillion, like 500 billion. Uh, leading into the financial crisis. And it ballooned after that. We said we were going to start to unwind it. We weren't able to. And 
come COVID crisis, now we're at almost $9 trillion. Uh, That's substantial, and that is a very different environment than we've been in. Uh, So I guess the long and short of it, again, kind of pulling back is the Fed is probably behind the eight ball. They're going to have to be hiking rates, rolling, uh, tapering asset purchases by March, and then starting to roll off the balance sheet. And on the borrower side, they're going to feel some some higher cost of borrowing. Um, On the equity side, I I think they are in for some turmoil um, and there's going to be some pullback. And again, it's kind of to your earlier point, this is cyclical. This is necessary. And, And so we need to go ahead and take our medicine now and be in a position for, you know, 2023 to really expand and have some positive growth coupled with not extreme inflation. (laughs) And which borrowers trade do you think are going to feel it more? You know, our clients are borrowing money at wholesale rates. And then there's prime rate borrowing, which is to purchase a car or credit card rates, things like that. Which ones are really going to feel the impact more? Um. So theoretically, it should be across the board because the idea is that as the cost for the uh, kind of wholesale dealer, whether you want to take it a level you know, deeper, the banks and what their cost of funds are, that, that really kind of dictates what they're giving out to borrowers. Um, the, so theoretically, it should be across the board. You're going to see stuff on like the prime, anything that has a bigger credit spread component to it, um, get penalized more only because of the overall economic environment. So credit spreads are going to expand. And if we look at something like SOFR, where the largest financial institutions are are really funding themselves, um, we expect SOFR to track Fed funds. So the Fed ends up hiking 5% or five times this next year. We, we expect rates you know, around 125, 130, 35. Um, the kind of match on that is, well, one, historically, if we can't weather a kind of uh, policy rate of 125, our economy isn't as strong as we think it is. So That's sorry, right. guys. Yep. Uh, smoke and mirrors, you've been drinking the Kool-Aid too long. Um, but you're not as strong as you think if you're saying that we can't get rates up to 125 um, and not be giving you liquidity every month. Um, so I think that's kind of you know one side of it. Uh, but as it filters down and as there is some um, reaction from both the equity side, but the economy slowing overall, um, you'll see those credit spreads widen. Um, so it, to the extent uh, yeah. that, to the extent that I think the banks calculate their risk, right? So when they have a fully collateralized asset, um, granted the borrowing rates going to rise, but that spread in theory shouldn't rise because their risk, if, and I'm speaking specifically to our structure, right? Because it's fully collateralized Absolutely. at all yeah. points with cash or cash equivalents to the lender at the SOFA rate plus their spread. 
we're in a position and the banks understand that position where their risk has not increased. Yes, the cost of funds has gotten bigger. That's going to be passed through to the client, but additional risk has not been assumed by the bank. So the spread stays the same. And if we do a good job, we can even try to negotiate a lower spread to have a smaller impact to the client where the rates are really going to be felt. I'll use a car as an example. You know, at Prime Plus lending for a car, those lenders are going to utilize the unstable economy to increase their spread because the risk of default is that much higher across the board. Exactly. Am I saying that correctly? A hundred percent. Okay. Yep. So for our uh, clients that are are un easy about it and they understand economics because they're business people right they're wealthy individuals Mm -hmm. they understand how things move and how costs get passed on to the consumer what they're what they're concerned about is unrealistic borrowing costs being dumped in overnight causing their their portfolios to really get out of whack and historically that's just never happened and if we want to say hey you know what the Fed said, uh, you know, three plus hikes this year. They've kind of come out a little more hawkish, so maybe five. Maybe it's Jamie Diamond is correct, and it's six or seven. That pushes the, that policy rate up to call it 150. That's not a huge jump as far as like your overall cost of debt. Um, now moving from if you had a 200 spread from 225 to 375 is substantial. I, I'm not downplaying that, but at the same time, our cost of debt is still under four percent. It's still cheap We're money. Still under five. That's again, it's, like, uh, it's hard not to make this arbitrage work when debt costs are that low. Because we go back and talk about the S&P, we were talking about 27%, 16%, 29%. Oh, a negative six year. Don't worry, we have a floor. 19% the year before. Like, why are we concerned about debt costs going from 250 to 450? And that's a great because statement. And, and that's a bigger and really, weather of the economy. <laughs> if, if they're yeah, worried about and, everything going upside down because costs went up to 5%. And quite frankly, that's how presidents and administrations keep score now, which is how well the equity markets do. So I don't think, again, I don't know. I don't have a crystal ball for the 20 plus years I've been in the industry. It's never worked. Um, That's great. Neither does the Fed, evidently. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. But we do know. If capitalism is given a chance to succeed with minimal government intervention um, in all forms of government intervention, if capitalism is allowed to succeed and businesses are allowed to produce goods and services, the equity markets will reflect that they will become profitable and they will adjust and the equity markets will rise. We do know that to be true. Trey, thank you for coming on the show. It is insightful as always, and it is a very comforting security blanket for us at Cool Springs Financial, knowing we have Bascom as our 
as our partner to put in if it were ever to become necessary. And I don't hear us saying that it is right now. Hedges, swaps, caps, you know, those those defensive measures on some of the portfolios that we, we would need to to protect our clients right now. And I, I can I can tell I'm going to have you back on a bunch of times. You're probably going to be the most um, the guest with the most appearances when this podcast is all said and done. <laughs> but, well, I really enjoy John and you're, you're right on top of things on, the, on this and your takeaways from it. I, I feel like you have a good pulse uh, on what's really going on. Uh, but if your, your clients have any questions, if they're having to deal with a LIBOR SOFR transition or anything like that, um, they know how to get in touch with me. Uh, I know you do. And, and uh, always happy to have a conversation and, and help any way we can. Yeah, your um, contact information is going to be your contact information is going to be at the bottom of this episode, so they can click right on it and get in touch with you. Absolutely. So always feel free. Any client of Cool Sprays, uh, we would love to have a conversation with and um, talk through any of your concerns. And, and again, we're an independent third party, so we'll tell you if there's something you should be concerned about. Or at least we think so. And that's what I appreciate about you because I know you will. There, there's no, um, it, it's it's all about knowledge and facts, and that's what I appreciate about you, Jerry. Always. Well, thank all right, you, buddy. Again, Talk to you I soon, appreciate man. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay. There we have it. Another great episode. Don't forget to check out the show notes at premiumfinanceshow.com. And you can find out more about all the ways we can help you at coolspringsfinancial.com. That's it for this episode. Have a great week and we'll talk to you next time.